Welcome to the Untitled Burton Fran podcast. We're two brothers separated by time and distance. Please join us as we reconnect through our mutual love of horror movies. Excellent. This is episode two of the Untitled Burton Fran Horror Podcast. And the film that we watched was The Witch. Before we get into the synopsis, does it make sense to us to say whether we liked it or not, or how much we liked it? I think that's a great idea. I really enjoyed it. It was an extremely different film. It was a really unique experience, though I have to say I didn't enjoy the audience that I saw it with. Oh. And I may have to talk a little bit more about that later. Yeah. What about yourself? I respected the movie and enjoyed it while I was sitting there, but was very disappointed in the ending. Hmm. So let's go to your synopsis and then we can discuss it. (laughs) The film is The Witch. It's uh, subtitled A New England Folktale. It's about 93 minutes long. It's by director and writer Robert Eggers. It opens in the 1630s at a Puritan colony where a family is being expelled. We hear the closing remarks of the father, William, where he is obviously at odds with the Puritan leadership. And it seems to be arrived at mutually that they will be moving out of the settlement. He takes his wife and four children into the wilderness. An unspecified amount of time passes. We see a montage of scenes where they pray together as a family in an open field. They seem to decide a place where they're going to settle and build a farm. More time seems to pass because there's a baby, a fifth child, and the eldest daughter is working outside. Her mother asked her to take care of the baby, Sam, while the eldest daughter, Thomason, is playing peekaboo with the baby. The baby vanishes. There is a little flutter of movement in the nearby woods, but nobody can seem to find the baby. The audience, however, sees a red-cloaked figure clutching the baby under their arm, and later that evening, vague, shadowy images of an old, naked hag sacrificing that baby and bathing in its blood. Then the family begins to slowly unravel. The mom, Catherine, clearly blames the eldest daughter for the loss of the baby. The father and son are having difficulty making ends meet. The corn crop that they've planted is contaminated by some sort of blight. They go surreptitiously hunting in the woods, which apparently is forbidden. And while the son is wondering about his little brother going to hell because since they're cut off from the the rest of the Puritan settlement, they're no longer receiving sacraments, and the baby was unbaptized. The father reveals that he has sold a family heirloom, his wife's silver cup, in order to buy hunting implements. All the while that this is taking place, the language that everyone is using is sort of early modern English. It has a real Elizabethan tone to it. It takes a lot of getting used to. I think that's part of the reason I didn't entirely understand why the family was being expelled at the beginning. Your ear has to sort of attune to it. It's worth mentioning here that the son is casting sidelong glances at his older sister, who is clearly becoming a woman. And there are two twin children, the 
sort of uh, horrible <laughs> pig-snouted twins, uh, Mercy and Jonas, who are constantly playing and gambling, and it's clear that they're little troublemakers. They are uh, chasing the farm animals, especially a black goat that they've named Black Philip, and singing and generally making nuisances of themselves. They seem to be weirdly tolerated or ignored by the Well, that's adults. something I wanted to discuss, because it just didn't seem plausible that these <laughs> very strict parents would allow such free reign to the twins, but we can come back to that. Well, certainly, we, and, yeah. and we absolutely will. In the aftermath of the baby's disappearance, the mother is clearly grieving. She is praying every day. The family tries to lift her spirits no avail. The daughter is given a lot of heavy tasks to take care of, lots of chores. And out of irritation to silence uh, one of the horrible younger twins, she tells the twin that she is a witch, uh, which is something that is going to come back and bite her later. The son and eldest daughter take off to the village. Uh, I wasn't entirely certain of how they were going to undo some of the damage that had been done, but with good intent, they get separated, however, because they are followed by a very evil-looking rabbit. (laughs) And the son is seduced by a much younger-looking witch. And again, the daughter is cast in a very poor light. She ends up being witness to the disappearance of each of her siblings, which only adds to the paranoia and tacit understanding that her parents believe that she is at fault. Though the father fights it as long as he possibly can. The eldest son comes back later that evening naked and mute, and uh, there is a bloodletting to help him recover his wits. And the mother begins to suspect that witchcraft might be afoot, remembering an incident with some Native American people at the colony. The dad refuses to believe it. The following day, the boy tries to speak, but is unable to. In a horrific sequence, they break his jaw, and he spits out a small apple that was lodged in his mouth, and proclaims his love for Jesus, and is saved. The twins then accuse the eldest daughter of being a witch, saying that because of her, they can't remember their Lord's Prayer. The father, fed up with all of this, locks up all three uh, suspected children into livestock pen, and in the course of the evening, the mother dreams that she is happily reunited with her baby, her son and her missing silver cup and she dreams of breastfeeding her child but in fact she is feeding a raven that is pecking at her breast Uh, the following morning the twins are gone they seem to have been taken by the witch and the only things left in the pen are some white goats that are flayed and the teenage daughter who is covered in blood the dad is then attacked and killed gored by the black philip Then the mother comes out in her bedclothes and tries to strangle the eldest daughter, and the eldest daughter uh, kills her with a hatchet out of self-defense. This is a spoiler-filled review because we're going to talk about every aspect of this film. So I'm going to say the ending, which is the daughter is alone on the farm with her dead family in a state of shock. An evening seems to pass. And she follows the black goat, Black Philip, into the pen and asks him to speak, which he does. And it is clearly Satan. He asks her what she wants. And she says, what do you have to offer? And he says, everything. And he asks her to sign her name in a book after she disrobes. 
and she is then led into the forest into a witch's coven around a bonfire where they are chanting, and along with the rest of the witches, she ascends into the sky. And the film ends. That's a great summer. Is it? It's, yeah. it's a little bit lengthy, but I wanted to get it all out there. I want to react to your summary. And oh, yeah, please. A lot of the things that you describe in, your, in the summary are unambiguous. You actually see a witch carrying the baby, through, running through the woods with the baby. You see Satan near the end when she asks the goat to speak. And of the different incidents that you summarized, the one that creeped me out the most was actually the, the most ambiguous, which is these twins who have been a presence throughout the whole movie and on some level a lighter presence because they're actually not as stern and they're singing and doing mischief disappear and you never see them for the rest of the movie. And what happened to them fuels your imagination and is actually on some level scarier than the unambiguous shots of the witches. So I'm, I noticed that my reaction to your summary was, I like the ambiguous more than the unambiguous. I think that was similar to your reaction to both of our reactions to It Follows, actually. Yeah, exactly. That was a movie that was steeped in ambiguity, uh, that really allowed yourself to lose yourself in that film because so much was unexplained. And there is a lot that's really clearly delineated in The Witch. As I began watching it, it took a long time for me to get into the rhythm of the movie, of what the movie was wanting to show me. And midway through, I kind of began to feel like we had really crawled into the headspace of somebody living in 17th century New England. In some laudable way, I felt like the director was not trying to make this a fast, sexy, current horror film, which is going to be re would be really disappointing to a lot of the audience members that I saw it with. But I felt like the film is really hemmed in by the things that people living in this time period were completely terrified of. And Interesting. as the film progresses, it feels like every single character's worst fears are confirmed. But we never go beyond the fears of the actual characters in the movie. There is no amazing latex special effects. There's nothing truly innovative about the film techniques that the director uses. It's all really confined to the rubric of what were the Puritans most frightened of. So for you, the unambiguity that there really are witches and that these things could actually happen made sense because that's what the people in the movie believe, and you felt like you were transported to that time. More than that. For starters, it's a folktale. So within the context of it being a folktale, it takes place in a moral universe where the fates of the characters is kind of horribly earned, though I hate to say it, because I don't think that anybody in the film really deserves what happens to them. It's certainly looking at it with very modern eyes, none of the none of the, the sins that they commit are mortal sins. They're they're pretty venial sins. But in the context of the movie and the context of someone imagining the story in the 17th century, this is exactly why you needed to watch yourself and why you needed to guard your soul and why you didn't want to go to your death unshriven. Uh, well, I think that makes sense, uh, not just for any man in that period, but we're talking about a man who criticized the colony he was in for not being pious enough. Right. So one of the things I was thinking is, why is this family doomed? Why are they suffering so much? And it, on some level, I, I think I'm going to echo what you're saying, that 
If you believe that people are constantly sinning, there's no way to avoid being damned. And that's what happens here. They believe that there's an original sin, that they're all kind of doomed, doomed, right? Or completely trying to check their human instincts and needs. And there's no way but to fail. So on some level, it makes sense. They all are punished. It's true. And it begins with the father who makes these decisions and it it ultimately dooms his family. On some level, that really bothers me. (laughs) I think, especially horror films that take place in moral universes, always kind of bother me. This is going to seem a little tangential, but when I was a kid, I was watching Hitchcock's Psycho, which I loved. Uh I always had this troubling feeling that an audience in the 1950s was watching it and the fate of Crane at the very beginning when she gets killed in the motel... It always bothered me that on some level, an audience from that time period kind of thought that she deserved it. Because because, she embezzled the money. Because she embezzled the money. Because she was sleeping with a man that she was not married with. I always hated the idea that on some level, and Hitchcock must have been aware of it as well, with the audience that he he was sort of playing with, that on some level, that is an audience's expectation gratified. That yes, it, she is not an innocent so ultimately, it's terrible. We, we have to suffer through her terrible uh, murder. And it might be kind of overkill, but she was kind of asking for it in the, in, in the context of the story. Instead of it just being some sort of horrible happenstance that she didn't really deserve. I guess that, that always gets carried to the nth degree in the, during the 1980s, during the movies we grew up with, of the slasher variety with, uh, with you know, Freddy Krueger and, and uh, uh, Jason Voorhees. And Michael Myers, where, you know, the sin factor is always very high. It's it's always yeah. the, the misbehaving kids who are wantonly and happily having sex and drinking. In all those movies, there's a gray area. In this movie that we're talking about, there is no gray area for the most part. Well, actually, is there? I mean, the boy, as you said, is giving his sister these surreptitious glances. Uh, obviously, he's starting puberty. And he's exploring his sexuality. So I was about to say here, the, all the children are innocent. Except they really aren't on some level. The kids are disobedient. They don't respect their elders. Mm -hmm. The young boy is having sexual thoughts. The girl loses her temper. So on some level, I guess this is a gray area for them too. They're not perfect in being just damned. In their world, they are sinful. Yeah, they they are sinful. That baby was unbaptized and is going to hell. The son is having lustful thoughts. And we know from for Puritans living at that time, sin in thought is as bad as sin in action. So that's what condemns him. The girl who confesses in a, a really remarkable scene where she's confessing to God about playing on the Lord's Day and not taking her prayer seriously when she threatens her youngest twin and even in jest says that she's a witch. She's inviting disaster. And certainly the, the twins for communing with the Satan goat, there's not a single family member who is innocent except for maybe the mom, I guess. I mean, dad gets them all in trouble by getting them excommunicated or expelled out of the community. And he steals. He steals her possession and sells it. He right. commits many, many mistakes, and he pretty much relinquishes his role as the authoritarian leader of the household. But what exactly the mom's sin is? Well, uh, she has a favorite. I think the two, the baby and the older boy are her favorite. 
I don't know if that can, that that doesn't seem like sinful, but who knows? In those days, <laughs> in this story, it might have been enough. That poor actress. Do you actually watch Game of Thrones? No. Is she in it? She is in it, and she's a great Scottish actress by the name of uh, Kate Dickey, and she has the misfortune of having to breastfeed both in Game of Thrones and in this film. This is probably <laughs> not something that she wants to be remembered. I hope that it's, it's better than a raven in Game of, Games of Thrones. No, it's actually worse. She oh. has like a, a 12-year-old son that she insists on breastfeeding in front of the court that she oh. is the lady and leader of. So it is a grotesque breastfeeding. Yeah, it's horrific. That being said, all the actors are great. And so if you were to give this a, a letter grade, what would you give it? Oh, I really liked it. And uh, I would have to give it an A, honestly. Honestly and genuinely. So where did you see it? What kind of theater? Uh, so I saw it in a brand new modern theater here in Chicago called the Arclight Cinema. I think there's an Arclight Cinema also in Los Angeles. So, so yeah, it's think... a limited chain, uh, one where you can have drinks. And I had a very nice, pleasant beer and buttered popcorn while I was watching the movie. But the audience felt like people who could not get in to see Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice this weekend. Uh, and they were miserable. And they were audibly miserable. And at some point they decided that they were going to start laughing at the film. Especially at the point that the son, uh, Caleb, dies. Oh, that's a super traumatic scene. Yeah. And uh, when his parents dig up his grave and the mother crawls into the grave with the son... Pretty much the rest of the movie was derisive laughter. Wow, that's frustrating. It is incredibly frustrating. Uh, did you see it with Steven? I did see it with my boyfriend, Steven. And did he like it? Yes, he, he actually enjoyed it very much. Okay, good. But you haven't told me if you had to give this a letter. Also, where did you go see it? I saw it at a theater in Williamsburg, Brooklyn called the Nighthawk Theater, which is a theater similar to the Arclight where you can have drinks, but you can also have dinner. Oh, wow. I think a bigger chain is like the Alamo Draft House. I don't know if you've ever seen any oh, of those. Oh, yeah, I've, I've heard of it. And so it was a very comfortable experience, and they named cocktails after incidents in the movie, and so I was having the Silver Cup which I didn't realize what the significance was until I was watching the movie. So that was fun. But it was a very comfortable experience, and I did not have the same sort of audience that you did. They knew what they were getting into. So. Okay, very good. Can I ask you, what was in the Silver Cup? It tasted like a tiki drink, so it didn't really connect with me in terms of what was going on on stage. You know, fruity, um, <laughs> <laughs> kind of the opposite of what was going on on stage. So yeah, the, the, the good the question, but um, I didn't see the connection. Yeah, the photo that you sent me of it looked like a kind of a pina colada. Yeah, and that's what it tasted like. So <laughs> maybe it was some comic relief from the movie. Possibly. You know, I, I always look a little bit askance at uh, comical cocktails inspired by movies. <laughs> Well, to get to my letter grade, I think I would give this a C plus. Oh wow! Yeah. I, well, excellent. It's it's great that you and I are not on the same page. No. <laughs> I, I think and, that that leads to a more interesting conversation, to be honest. Well, for me, it's a more confusing conversation, I think, because uh, it follows our last conversation. I really got what the I think we both get, and it was easy to get what the director was trying to say. And here, I thought there were so many things going on. Issues with coming of age, issues with religious intolerance, issues with men's unease with nature, and and it's a short, you know, it's not a long movie, so there's so much to talk about in terms of these issues, but it it 
there didn't seem to be a real focus, and I found that a little confusing. I think it's being praised far and wide as the next great horror movie after it follows critically, but the audience uh, score has been steadily a, a C minus. Oh. So th this is a, a great example of a film where audiences and a film critic community are at odds with each other. Yeah. Totally out of sync. One of the things that I really liked about the film is how completely immersive it felt. There is this almost painful attention to period detail. Honestly, if they had made a film about early American settlers living during this time period, just from the privation, the cold, the hunger, the desperate living conditions, that seems pretty horrific in and of itself. Yeah. But you add in their constant scripture quoting and their adherence to their religious beliefs. You know, the thing that it reminds me of the most is Stephen King. Oh. Especially during those early novels that I read of his, like The, Sh the Shining or Cujo or uh, Salem's Lot. Or Pet Cemetery. Maybe. Or Pet Cemetery, or or short stories like The Mist. I, I feel like the one through line that always seems to come up is how do people behave in extraordinary circumstances? And the answer is very disappointingly most of the time. They're always like flashes of heroism. They're definitely are good people, but for the most part, we behave terribly. We turn on each other. We, we become worse than the thing that's attacking us, no matter how unbelievable that thing is. Even to think of Kubrick's The Shining, the family is falling apart. I don't know if the thing that is pressing down on them is real or not, but it's the family falling apart, and that is always really, really painful, as it is in this film as well. It is, and that's a great comparison I hadn't thought of to The Shining. I think part of the reason I didn't buy into this movie completely is we're shown that riches are real and that these threats are real and that goats can talk. But the rest of the movie has no fantasy element to it or dreamlike element to it. And what I liked about It Follows is that sort of dream logic ran throughout the whole movie. And here it doesn't. Yeah, I, I, I think you're, you, you've pegged it. The film is as if you were to give a Puritan from that time period a camera, and it is super lean. I, I don't think that there's a lot of logic to the conception of witches. For the title of the film being The Witch, we don't get to know the witch that's in the wood at all. She is that classic conception. It's probably not even a, a classic American idea. It's a classic old world idea of it just being this hag who is feeding off of innocence. Right. But, like a grim fairy tale. Yeah, that's precisely it. She isn't given a lot of motivation. We don't hear her speak. The film is this frustrating exercise where the daughter is cast in the worst light in every instance. As the family falls apart, she's the one who is always the last to see someone disappear. The most blame is heaped on her. And I feel that, that there's something very primal and basic that's being explored in this movie about the roots of where horror comes from and how much of the fear of a Puritan from this time period of women of women on their own, of women being willful, of women coming into their own sexuality, of women not obeying. And none of that is explored from any sort of feminist stance. It is, it is cut dry and with, with no nuance. And you're right, it, 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 everything is just laid bare. 
I had read few reviews of this movie before I went in, unlike the It Follows, where I hadn't read anything. Mm. So I was trying to really look at the dad throughout and see how he treated his daughter, Thomason. And I didn't see him reacting to Thomason as a threat, as a girl who's becoming a woman and, and as a woman uh, becoming uncontrollable. He actually seemed uh, decent to her. I think this is his failing, honestly. I think one of his sins and one of his failings is that he's too soft. He's too soft on Thomason. What doesn't come across to a modern audience about that character is that he's weak. He doesn't confess to the stolen silver cup until he absolutely has to. And the resentment that his wife has built up for Thomason remains. He sounds reasonable to us when he says, this isn't witchcraft. But within yeah, really the story itself, in this world. Yeah. He, he's wrong. In fact, he, it's his failure to act that is putting the family in further jeopardy. And when he confronts Thomason, when he actually believes that she, that she is guilty... And he's insistent, please tell me the truth. You're going to be in trouble. We're going to have to tell the colony about this. And you, you can tell me, tell me that you are in fact a witch. I actually really like that scene where she confronts him with a litany of his mistakes and his failings. And then at that point he says, I won't listen to such devilish things. Mm. He's a hypocrite. She says it quite plainly. And, and he believes her when she says it's twi- the twins. Yeah, he seems to. Um, yeah. he, if, though, if he truly believed her, then I don't think he would have locked them up together with her in the livestock pen. Something really interesting about those uh, pig-faced twins... I'm very unkind to those to those actors. I, 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 I really <laughs> well, want. I, I think, look, I think it was you're meant to to dislike them. So I think your unkindness is just what the director was aiming for. I mean, they are miserable. <laughs> I, I, I actually thought it was the one bit of ambiguity within the film itself was when they were insisting that they couldn't remember their Lord's Prayer and they began carrying on and thrashing about when their brother dies and right. uh, insisting that Thomason is the witch. For me, it really evoked the Salem trials and everything that I'd read previously, especially the Crucible. Let's, let's face it, there were no witches. There were no witches, but there were some poor women who were burned at the stake for no good reason. But also in the Crucible, you've got the very practiced girls who are trying to make trouble and have created an enemies list and they're trying to cast the worst light on those women that they would like to see exterminated. And so they have their rituals and they have their practice speeches and their their fits and it's all a contrivance. It is all an act. And it reminded so, me of that. And so did you think the twins were really having, I mean, this is a world, remember, where there are witches and people do eat the poison apple. Did the twins really have convulsions or are they acting? It's a good question because, of course, when the kids are seemingly unconscious on the bed, they come to when he threatens them. They, 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 they wake up the minute that he says, okay, I've had enough of this. And he grabs one of them and the little uh, Ugnaught starts screaming. I think at the end of the film, we I think it's validated that, in fact, they, they are in league with Satan and that he has been whispering to them the entire film long. Right. And you said, yeah, it is ambiguous what their fate is. I think it's the same as, as the baby. They are sacrificed. 
the only one that they were looking to recruit was uh, Thomason. And there is something so sad about her fate in the end, because she's not a bad kid, and she has lost everything. There's nowhere for her to go. There's nothing for her to do. She's forced to kill her mother out of self-defense, and now she is... She's an orphan now. She's an orphan now. She has no family. She's got no ties. She falls into this, but she's not exactly seduced or a bad kid from the start. What do you make of the father chopping wood all the time? Of course, it seems like a, a, a weird bookend to him being ultimately buried in all his uh, in all the firewood that he's cut. I know this is a weird reference, but when all the firewood falls on him, reminds me of a death scene in, I'm trying to remember the movie, a Karen Black movie where the house kills all the family and Betty Davis, and burnt offerings. Oh, where I the love chin- that. Yeah, where the chimney falls on the kid at the end. Anyway, that's what I was thinking of when that stack of wood fell. But I thought the chopping wood made sense with your analysis of the dad being weak. And so here's a man who knows he's weak and gets a thrill out of seeing himself powerfully chop wood because maybe he senses he's weak otherwise. Uh, winter is encroaching. They have no food. They're going to die. They're, they're, they're going to starve to death. But it yeah. is the one thing that he does to maintain his role as the head of the household. He seems so frustrated when he's doing it, but I, I think it's a one, it's sort of a lip service to his role as the head of the house. Yeah. Let's go back to burnt offerings though. <laughs> Karen Black, oh, it's um, Oliver uh, is the name of the actor. Oliver Reed. Oliver Reed. Yes, absolutely. And Betty Davis. And there's an, is it an evil chauffeur? Exactly. He's, He's kind like, of like the tall man from... Uh, Angus Grimm from Phantasm, Phantasm of Phantasm. course. Yeah, yeah. You play a good game, boy. <laughs> Who died recently. Yes, I was very sad to hear that. But there's a new Phantasm movie that's coming out where uh, Angus Grimm has a scene. Oh, great. That's awesome. Yeah. I had no idea. So, Burnt Offerings... They're being haunted by a spectral chauffeur. He's like some pockmarked guy in a chauffeur's uniform with a chauffeur hat. And he's got mirrored aviator sunglasses. Yep. And he does things like push coffins at them. Exactly. The villain is really the house. Okay. I I, I don't remember it very well, except for, I think, one of those many instances that you uh, showed me a horror movie that I wasn't (laughs) supposed to see. (laughs) And I couldn't sleep for days. Again, my question, is that a good thing or a bad thing? (laughs) It's a a formative thing. It's a formative thing, all right. Yes. I think I was scarred for a long time. (laughs) Uh, One of the things I wanted to talk to you about was the the clothing in this movie is amazing in terms of you really get a sense that this is handmade woolen clothing from that period. And how did you feel about it? it? What role did that play in your buying into this whole world? I thought the movie was immersive in its design. The cinematography was beautiful. There is a observation of the natural world that just looks very ominous and very, very creepy. Yeah, I, I think the, the design is pretty flawless. Except that this, I have to admit, like the shots of even the Black Phillip, but the rabbits, I found more amusing than terrifying. Well, I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my audience did as well. But yeah, again, I, I feel I feel like that is very deliberate on the filmmaker's part. Uh, but the music, the music was supposed. He clearly he wanted it to be ominous, <laughs> and the music was ominous. 
But bottom line, it's a rabbit. And so for me, that didn't work. <laughs> and I didn't appreciate the, there was one like boo moment. And that was when Black Phillip rams the dad near the end. Mm-hmm. And it just didn't feel, it felt like a cheap shot. Uh, the whole audience shrieked when it happened. But Thomason is watching and you would think she would have said something like, look out or something. But they, they let it be this like scare tactic. And I thought that was kind of cheap. Back to the rabbit. <laughs> do you remember going to go see Monty Python and the Holy Grail in the movie theater? You, I, me, and mom? You must have been way too young for that movie because I think I was too young for it. And mom had to take me out into the lobby because I was crying and shrieking at the top of my lungs when they confront the evil white rabbit that tears yeah. nights apart limb from limb. It was one of many, many movies that mom took us to where I, I didn't realize it was a comedy. I barely did, and I'm six years older than you. But they're in last night. Eternal Fear of Rabbits. But you still, you liked uh, Terry Gilliam uh, after that, so it didn't scar you tremendously. I remember you being a big fan of Brazil. Oh, I, I did love Brazil, but by then I was like, you know, a teenager. And, but and, I have to admit, I never, even though I, I was exposed to this early, I never really loved Monty Python. Yeah. Even without being scarred. <laughs> hmm. We're getting far afield again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's part of, I think partially that's due to the movie. Again, it's, uh, I found it thematically confusing, even though I enjoyed sitting there. But I just didn't think it had a lot to say, except that if you're a Puritan, you're bound to sin, and so your life is doomed. It seems a very honest Puritan perspective. Yeah. It is completely unforgiving. All you need to do is cross the line a little bit, and the sins of the dad are visited upon all the family members, and it is uh, living in fear. Yeah, there's not a moment. I'm trying to think if there's a moment of God's grace in this movie where there's some reward or some love from God. There isn't. Uh, God, God is a non-presence. Yeah. For, but, for the it, which time. is weird because if it's unbalanced on some level. I, I mean, it must be that the Puritans were un, and clearly they were unbalanced because Satan is personified. I mean, he's an actual. It looked like a man at the end. You see the goat, and then it turns into a real person. Clearly, it shows their imbalance that there's actually a real devil, but there's no God. There, there, there is no reward. Depressing. It, it, is, it is depressing. I, would, I guess I have to regrade my grade. It should be no. more like a B. No. Because, no, because my criticisms that there's no dream logic is wrong, because there actually is a logic, and it is the logic of the Puritans at that time. That's exactly what I feel. I feel like like all of those unedited Grimm's fairy tales that end poorly yeah. and horribly for the children in it, it's a cautionary tale. There is something completely unsentimental and unromanticized about it that precludes there being any sort of any fantasy. Things are cut and dried. Your ledger uh, of what what you've done right and what you've done wrong gets swept away the minute you cross God, and but that happens but before you have the to film begins. God. Yes, yes. So it's, the game is sacked against you. It, it it really it really is. I'm glad I'm not a Puritan. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm troubled that I began thinking of venial sins and that <laughs> I, re- I remembered enough of my Catholic school training to to think yeah these are all pretty forgivable. Uh, <laughs> But not back then, yeah. Yes. 
Yes, back then, I guess there were no lesser sins. What did you think of the language? On some level, I think it's effective because it, uh, it does transport you to that time. Also, it's kind of a tricky way to get you to focus intently on the, on the characters and what's going on. You have to really pay attention. But on the other hand, in the, okay, I read a Village Voice review, uh, so this is not my original thought, but they thought it was ridiculous uh, that the right before the closing credit, there's a there's a um, title card, a title card saying that this is talking about the authenticity of the movie. When we're dealing with a movie that shows witches as being flesh and bone, so I had to agree with that a little bit. I have to completely disagree uh, <laughs> because. I actually really liked that title card. And the title card at the very end says that the dialogue for this film has been largely taken from transcripts of the time period. Again, the witch itself doesn't have a voice. People that were tried as witches were having to confess what it is that Satan said to them and how they were tempted and how what, what, what pleasures they were offered. So in the transcripts, it, it probably did say that, you know, Satan offered them a delicious life, which I thought was an interesting choice of words. I loved the dialogue that Black Philip the goat has at the end. I thought every line was was beautiful. When Thomason says, "I can't write my, I can't sign my own name because she doesn't know how to write it," yeah. he says, "I'll guide your hand." Yeah. And uh, I, I, I actually, I thought that was one of the most chilling parts of the movie. I think this is this discussion's been helpful. Now I think I'm, I can put into words one of my issues with the movie, and that's when you see these witches, you're not seeing them through any of the other characters' eyes. You're not there. There's no family member in that witch's hut when the witch is running through the woods with the baby. Uh, Tom is still in the open field, so you're being as a viewer, you're being presented this information not filtered through any of the characters. And I think that's where my biggest disconnect with the movie is. If these images had somehow been presented to me through these characters' eyes, I would buy into it. But they're not. You're there alone as a viewer seeing it. I, I think that, again, speaks to the, to the old world fairy tale quality of it. This yeah. is a story that we're being told that's being presented to us the characters are learning things all too late. The audience is in on certain things that the characters are not privy to. Uh, but you're right. It probably would make for something considerably different and more compelling if they had any insight into this uh, or had any perspective on it or were able to address their attacker or had even knowledge of their attacker before they die. I think most of them die in complete ignorance. Yeah but that's not the unforgiving story that we're presenting. Right. So I just, I think I'm just rejecting the Puritan viewpoint. <laughs> it's, it's, no, I, th I think that's legitimate. I, I, yeah. I, I think that that's a good and normal reaction. On some level, I, I feel personally repulsed by this. Yeah. I, I feel repulsed by the perspective of this story and the way that it's being told. It is so ungenerous it is so unkind to its characters. We're watching them twist on hooks for the hour and a half. And that's, it feels longer than that because nothing good happens to anybody. Yeah. No one's ignorance is relieved or enlightened. No one learns anything. And poor Thomason sort of shell-shocked walks into her new life as a witch uh, after her family is dead at the end. 
It's, it's terrible. But there's also no sense of what happens afterwards. I feel like I'm really hitting a brick wall at the end of the movie, which is the brick wall of the Puritans' fucking inane imagination, which is they don't know what the witches are going to do after they float into the sky. There's no sense of why anyone would want to be in league with Satan or why this would be great or pleasurable or happy for anybody to be unrelentingly evil, to kill babies and bathe in their blood and fat and float in the sky. But they are laughing and smiling. I mean, there isn't a moment where Tom Innocent is, is giggling when she's playing peekaboo with the baby. But boy, that's, there's a real punishment after that moment of pleasure. And I think that's the only moment I can remember where some, a character smiling other than these witches at the end who are laughing and, uh, while they're um, uh, levitating. I think I'd be a witch, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like fun. Yeah. Um, being naked, floating in a chilly forest with a lot of other broads. Right. <laughs> All right, so I've elevated my mark to a B. You're you the solid A. <laughs> uh... <laughs> no, no, no. No, 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 no. I, I, I actually think that your reaction is completely valid. I think that you should feel frustrated. And, and it's interesting. Like I said, I think this is an interesting exploration of what was terrifying centuries ago. And it's interesting to think of what remains of that mindset that still works on us today. It's certainly not in the same form, but I feel like there are hints of it in all modern horror that we still deal with. Yeah, that's interesting. I think we're still scared of women. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I can't think of the last movie that had witchcraft in it, to be honest, that I've that I've seen. Uh, I never saw The Craft with Nev Campbell. I remember enjoying it, but I don't remember the details of it. Uh, so I, do you think the, the movie deserves the tremendous critical acclaim it's gotten? I actually do. I do. I feel like I, I'm in line with it. I think the filmmaker did something really brave and really genuinely different. And it's definitely not going to be satisfying to most people. I don't know that I'd even recommend it to a lot of people. But I really felt like I got a lot out of it, and it's really been haunting me for the last couple of days since I saw it. Wow. And I just remembered one other witchcraft film that I saw. Which one? It was uh, Practical Magic with Sandra Bullock and Nicole <laughs> yeah, Kidman. Nicole Kidman, yeah. It was uh, back in the late 90s when some idiot studio executive thought that Nicole Kidman could be a comedy star before they realized that she was a human cactus. Yeah. And that's directed by Griffin Dunn. Who and directed by Griffin Dunn. And mm. the movie is awful. And basically, it, it kind of encapsulates Lilith Fair meets late 90s Candle Shop. I actually have another witch movie uh, that I think I, we saw together, Hocus Pocus. Oh, I, I did not see that. Oh, with Bette Midler and uh, Kathy and Jimmy. Sarah, Jessica, Sarah Parker. Jessica Parker, yeah, which I remember being disappointed when I saw it, and it turns out that a lot of people in their late 20s and 30s love that movie. What I remember best about that movie, even though I've never seen it, was all of the principals being on David Letterman, and all of them saying, this film was heavily recut. We did what was essentially like an R-rated horror movie when we were filming it, and Touchstone was horrified when they saw the dailies and they insisted that the film be cut down into this cute family-friendly version of itself. But it was not the movie that anybody signed up for. It wasn't the script that anyone had read. And it was something else entirely. Interesting. Uh, there's a scene where the there's an auditorium full of parents and kids for Halloween and Bed Miller curses 
them to dance until they die. And basically that's what's about to happen. They can't stop dancing, but it's largely unseen. It's hinted at, and you know that it's going on, uh, and it's, it has a very dark element, but it, they try to pass over it. What's the old movie where there's a dance-off and somebody actually dies from hunger, malnutrition? Oh, that's a great movie. Um, they shoot horses, don't they? They shoot, exactly. Sidney Lumet. Oh, yeah. I think I was really traumatized by that as a kid as well. <laughs> that, well, anyone, I think you'd watch it today, you're traumatized. And there, the, the kicker is even if you win this dance-off marathon in the, in the, during the Depression, you don't really win. Uh, instead of a prize money, they handed the winners a bill for uh, their lodging and food during the, the marathon. So they end up owing money instead of winning it. Oh, my gosh. Excellent. All right. So I think, does this conclude our review? <laughs> <laughs> I think it does. Well, I, I, I really enjoyed our conversation. Me I thought, too. I thought, I thought this was a good one. I, I like also that we were coming at it from different angles. You know, I, I think... In our last podcast, I actually had to cut out the number of times that you and I both separately said, I agree. I agree. <laughs> yeah, just, I, respectful, I respectfully disagree. This is great, which is, yeah. which is, which is fantastic. We, and, and I totally do respect your opinion on this because I think that's a totally reasonable reaction to walk away with. Any ideas of what you'd like to do for our next one? Uh, I like the idea of, of uh, seeing current movies. And, Me too. Uh, I and, like that as well. Yeah, and for the first time, this is the first time we've done a current movie. It's only our second time. Yeah. But it made me appreciate how critics have to really, unless they see movies several times, and I think it's unfeasible for them to do it since they have so many movies to review, how uh, there's a little pressure that you have to remember scenes and kind of take notes or uh, keep things in mind. Whereas if you're watching a videotape, you can say, oh, I'll rewind that and try to understand what happened there. Turn on the uh, subtitles. And turn on the subtitles, which I often do. How did you feel about seeing a new movie versus a one? Well, you had seen It Follows on, in the movie theater, but you had also seen it on tape, right, or on DVD. I, I had seen it uh, both in the theater and on Blu-ray. And I have to say that I've watched it since you and I did our podcast on that one together. Yeah. And I'm seeing more stuff in it that I hadn't seen before. Oh, good. I, I, I actually really enjoy revisiting that movie and showing it to friends. And if you go back, if you were to rewatch The Witch, I know you can't predict, but do you think you'd find a lot of things you hadn't seen in the first viewing? I think I might. Actually, I was thinking about what if I were to focus on Black Phillip more closely since the beginning of the movie. There probably is more, though, like we've mentioned, that this film is pretty lean, yeah. and th there, I, it is decidedly unambiguous in a lot of cases. Did you ever see, uh, off topic, did you ever see Bubba Hotep? I did. I did see what? that in the movie theater. Me too. What did you think of that one? I really liked it, and I think I bought a DVD of it, oh, but good. I've never revisited it. That is a really good entry into uh, horror comedy, which I think is uh, another another subgenre that that we haven't really like talked about very much. Did you see uh, Tucker and Dale versus Evil? I did not. I that was very enjoyable as well. Good. I think horror comedies are kind of hard to do. Well, um, the, same, the same director we're talking about also did uh, John Dies at the End. I don't know if you saw that one. I did see that. Yeah, same and, director. And I did enjoy that as well. I didn't think it was a perfect movie, but it had a lot going for it that I really, I really dug. Agreed. What about an oldie, Night of the Creeps? Oh, I love that one. You yeah. know that I love that one. I uh, do. <laughs> that, that, that's a great one. But, but you know, still, even having mentioned three of those very quickly, those are pretty uncommon. Those, those are pretty, pretty rare. Oh, there's an Australian horror comedy called Housebound. 
as friend. I have not seen that. I think it's available on Netflix, so I really recommend that you watch it and also definitely put on the subtitles. This, is the uh, poster a family and there's somebody shrouded in that one? Exactly correct. Oh, yeah. I remember reading about it but not seeing it. It's good and kind of like Shaun of the Dead. Oh, there are moments that are very funny, but at some point it gets heartfelt enough that you begin to genuinely worry for the fate of the characters and that's when the horror really kicks in. Another comedy I saw was, uh, I, I'm forgetting the title, but it's about these vampires that live together in Australia. Oh, I saw that. What We Do in the Shadows. What We Do in the Shadows. I fell asleep, to be honest, in that one. I hated it. Yeah. I, I was definitely... On the same track as if I had found it interesting, I think I would have stayed awake, but I fell asleep. I thought it was very soft-boiled. The comedy was really broad and really, uh, I'm not even trying to do a pun here. I thought it was really toothless. Toothless. <laughs> I, I, honestly, I, I, I'm no film critic. I'm no academic. I'm not trying to be witty <laughs> with the puns here, but it was a really toothless comedy. It kind of felt like Mel Brooks doing uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights yeah. after, like 10 years after the last Robin Hood film. Or yeah. even Spaceballs. Spaceballs, which I think is... People remember it very fondly, and I remember... I didn't like it at all. ...seeing it at the time, thinking, this is really weak. Low-hanging fruit. Yeah, exactly. That's how I felt about what we do in The Shadows. I felt that everyone who walked away loving that movie had some predisposed affection for those guys from Flight of the Concords that made them unable to distinguish it from any other mediocre fare. I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, we'll remind our listeners to check us up on Facebook and Instagram and Imager <laughs> and all the other social media that we're on. And certainly to join our message boards where they can discuss <laughs> our buy our t-shirts, buy our t-shirts. Yes. Uh, and certainly send us emails on all the things that we got wrong on this review. enjoy the last recording when you listened to it i did i thought it was really good and i uh, i had some friends listen to part of it and they all oh, no. like, you shared it <laughs> you're not supposed to share it <laughs> i'm not supposed to say you know put it on a website or anything but <laughs> no no i'm actually I'm, I'm glad i haven't actually shared it with anybody uh i steven hasn't heard it either oh okay uh, well you have my permission to, sh- to share it you know in a discreet way in a in a private way in a private way right yeah absolutely that sounds good so so the opening and everything else that i put in there was a placeholder i told you i i threw together that opener we can keep it i loved it i keep it i think yeah (laughs) unless you've already done a different one no no i haven't and and i threw together that music in 10 minutes just using apple you know sound loops it's great and everyone liked it okay (laughs) all 50 people Oh, no. (laughs) Hilarious. (laughs) Um, Excellent.